God of us all, uh, take our ears and hear through them. Take our minds and think through them. And take our hearts and set them on fire. For Christ's sake we pray. Amen. One of the most important things we do uh, for our children is teach them how to eat. And it starts right at the beginning, right? Mothers help their newborn, their, their tiny, their precious, their miraculous little babies learn how to nurse, learn how to take a bottle. And then when they start to crawl, when they find their way into corners, when they start to reach under couches, find those spots that apparently I forgot to clean when I was sweeping the house, uh, we very quickly teach them what to put in their mouths, uh, and more importantly, what not to put in their mouths. And then when they start sitting at the table with us, uh, that's when the fun really begins. No, we don't eat with our hands. Yes, you have to use a fork. No, you can't reach across the table and just grab. Yes, please use your words. And then it transitions to, no, we don't bring books to, no, we don't bring phones, no, we don't bring tablets to the table. Yes, you have to stay until everyone has finished. There's a lot that goes into learning how to eat. And it doesn't stop. I turned 63 last month, and uh, so I'm closer to the end than I am to the beginning. But a few years ago, and I think I mentioned this once, I was diagnosed as being pre-diabetic, uh, and I still am. And so the doc diagnosed or, or, sent, or referred me for a visit to a nutritionist so that I could learn how to eat again. And um, I have to admit, when I met with a nutritionist and she was telling me what I should eat and what I shouldn't eat, my reaction was much more the reaction of my five-year-old self. Now, I'm old enough and I'm disciplined enough not to actually have said this, but if she was identifying what I shouldn't eat anymore, what I should, inside I was saying, no, I don't want to eat that. No, you can't make me eat that. You're not the boss of me. Uh, but eventually I put away childish things and uh, now I'm eating my kale and sweet potatoes and uh, brown rice. But not beets, you cannot make me eat beets, I will not. You're not the boss of me. A lot goes into learning how to eat and the way we eat and what we eat and who we eat with tells a lot about who we are as people, as families, uh, as a culture, as a country. And the same is true at church. So one of the most important things we learn to do here is learn how to eat. That's why the communion table is such a central symbol of Christianity. It's why sharing the bread and cup of the Lord's table is such a central act the world over because it shapes who we are. The way we eat, what we eat, who we eat with or who we don't eat with tells a lot about who we are. So there's a great line in the novel Zorba the Greek, Nikos Katsinzakis. Uh, Alexis Zorba at one point says, tell me what you do with the food you eat and I'll tell you who you are. Some turn their food into fat and manure, some into work and good humor, and others, I'm told, into God. Tell me what you do with what you eat, and I'll tell you who you are. So that's the question I've been thinking about. How do we eat? How do we learn to eat? How does the communion table teach us to eat so that we turn our food not just into fat and manure, but we turn it into good work and compassion and justice and joy? 
We turn it into the vision and the hope and the promise of the beloved community that Jesus embodied. Well, it's important to remember that that communion, the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist, uh, is connected to the Jewish feast of Passover. So in the passage we heard from Luke 22, Jesus is gathered with his disciples, uh, his followers, his friends, and he says, I've eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you. Passover was and is, of course, celebrated every year. It's a Jewish holiday that recalls the power of God who freed the ancient Israelites from slavery in Egypt. And if you don't know that story, you can read it in the book of Exodus, or you can watch the Charlton Heston film titled The Ten Commandments. I would recommend the book. The people of Israel were held captive for 400 years. They were oppressed, they were beaten, they were abused, uh, and then God, through Moses, liberated the people. Uh, They escaped when the Red Sea uh, parted. They could uh, pass on dry land. Uh, And God continued to guide them and sustain them as they made their way through the wilderness to freedom. The thing is, it wasn't just freedom from slavery. They had been set free for a new way of living together. Not just freedom from, but freedom for. And so while they're they're in the wilderness, they're given the Ten Commandments. And we're all familiar with the Ten Commandments. But they're not just a list of do's and don'ts. They're not just a list of thou shalt and thou shalt nots. Although, to be clear, thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not lie and steal and covet your neighbors, everything else. The Ten Commandments are more than that, though. They were given... So that people who had been enslaved for 400 years, people who had never known anything but oppression and cruelty and ruthlessness, that those people, having been freed, wouldn't revert to old habits. Those people wouldn't turn around and enslave other people. Those people wouldn't themselves become enslaved to the impulses of greed or deception or violence. Passover celebrates that story of liberation. People freed for a new way of living together. And the hope, uh, the promise, the possibilities of that new way of living uh, is captured in the vision of the prophet Isaiah that Randy read and we read silently at the beginning of the service. The Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast. Isaiah can foresee a time when everyone will be welcome at the great feast of God. Everyone will have a place. Everyone will have what they need. God will destroy the shroud that's been cast over the people. God will wipe away tears. God will swallow up death and and all the things that kill us forever. It's a vision of shalom. It's a vision of God's holy and just peace. No one afraid. Everyone having what they need to thrive. And so when Jesus gathers with his friends, that's the story that they're part of. And in Luke's gospel, when Jesus takes the bread and cup, he, he then transforms the meaning of that Passover meal. Jesus promises that that vision of liberation and justice, the hope of shalom, of the beloved community, is coming true in him. It's coming true in and through and by his life and death and resurrection. In the way he lived, Jesus showed us the power that forgiveness and healing and love have to free us from our fears and from our failures, to free us for a life together of grace and peace and hope. 
In the way he died, Jesus shows us the limitlessness of God's perfect love. Jesus had taught his followers to love their enemies. When he was dying, Jesus forgave the ones who were killing him. And in his resurrection, we see, as, as Paul puts it in Romans, we see the power of God who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. So when Jesus shares the bread and cup, he shares these symbols of his body that will be broken, his blood that will be shed. He tells his followers, he tells his friends to remember him, to remember what they learned, what they saw, what they felt, to remember the liberating power of God that can change us, that can change history, that can change everything, to remember the encompassing love of God that has no end, and to remember that the spirit of the risen Christ will be with us always. Well, all these years later, we come to the table still, and we share this bread and cup today to be reminded, to be reminded of Jesus, to be reminded of the hope and the promise and the power of his life and death and resurrection, to be reminded that we're to turn the food we eat into good work and mercy and justice and joy and peace so that everyone is free to thrive, so that everyone is included in the vision of shalom, so that everyone has enough. And I'm not sure that Isaiah or Luke would have seen it as clearly as we see it now, but it also means eating in ways that we reduce the strain on the earth and slow the rate of global climate change. Right? So how do we do that? Well, simple things like bringing food for Family Promise, which many of you did this week, or helping out at Night Strike later this week, or supporting the work of Mennonite Central Committee next weekend. It's good things like eating healthy food with our families, however those are defined around the table, or sharing meals with friends. It's big things like rejecting ideology, ideologies, ideologies like Christian nationalism or American exceptionalism or, or the white supremacy that's um, run through the history of this country and rejecting those ideologies that privilege some and damage others. Practical things like shifting to more of a plant-based diet. That's, this, that's one of the most impactful things that individuals can do in the face of global climate change. And holy things. Holy things like opening our hearts and our minds and our souls to the wisdom and the grace and the love and the spirit of Jesus, who is the bread of life. So this week, uh, as you're shopping at the store, uh, as you're preparing dinner in the kitchen, you're sitting around the table, think about how you eat and what you eat and who you eat with. And think about what that says about you and think about what you want it to say about you. Tell me what you do with the food you eat and I'll tell you who you are. May God grant us the wisdom and the faith and the hope to learn how to eat as followers of Jesus. Amen.